0: Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order.
1: This is Panos Panay, author of Two Beats Ahead, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. what's up this is rebel radio what up what up this is dj newmark this is peanut butter wolf
2: it's your boy it's okay
1: keep checking out rebel radio rebel radio this is rebel radio we're in the place right here ah. rebel radio is going down would
3: you say Rebel radio
1: oh wait let's do it again R-R- rebel
3: radio what's up rebels welcome back to rebel radio the weekly show where i bring you the rebels who are shaping our culture I'm your host, Josh Levine. This week I sit down with the authors of a great new book, Two Beats Ahead, which is about innovation coming out of the music business that's relevant to those of us working in music and those of us not working in music. Uh, My guests are Panos Panay. He's the SVP of Global Strategy and Innovation at Berklee College of Music. He's also founder of Sonic Bids, which is a marketing and booking platform for independent artists. And his co-author, Michael Hendricks, uh, no relation to Jimmy. As far as I know, maybe, you know what? I might be wrong, maybe he is uh, related to Jimmy Hendrix. He's the global design director at IDEO, which is a world-renowned design and innovation firm, also assistant professor of the music business at Berkeley College of Music. And Michael and Panos are co-founders of the Open Music Initiative, which is, um, which is simplifying the way that creators are compensated in the music industry, um, taking aspects of the open software movement and applying them to the music industry. Really interesting project that I don't fully understand, but you can check it out online if you want to. Um, The book has some amazing lessons about what they call the musician's mindset. What makes them good leaders, entrepreneurs, problem solvers. A lot of the things that we look to uncover on this show, they put into a book with interviews, uh, lessons from people like Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, Pharrell, Hank Shockley. We have a really good conversation. We dig into some of those insights as well as their journey um, up to this point and what it was like putting this book together. So let's check it out.
1: Great part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's
3: great meeting you both. I appreciate you making time for this. Um the book looks really exciting. I, uh, you know, I've, I've spent my career in and around both music and working with corporate brands to kind of understand music and play in that space. And so I think um, uh, what you guys are talking about with Two Beats Ahead is very relevant to, to the stuff I do and just the way I see the world. So I'm excited to kind of dig into it with you. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always like to start at the beginning. I think you guys uh, both seem incredibly busy I think you have you have a lot going on um, in a good way and really interesting careers and so I'd love to, to start a little bit with your background and, and kind of how you got to this point um, and specifically around your love for music do you so I'll put to both of you do you remember the first records that you bought for yourselves
1: definitely yeah well I <laughs> I, I grew up in cyprus so getting records back then was pretty difficult and pretty rare sure but my first ever record was an elvis presley record and it was the soundtrack to fun in acapulco oh wow um uh which is not as fine as movies but it has a couple of uh cool cool songs yeah and it was promptly followed by an amazing soundtrack to a movie also by Elvis called "King Creole," mm. and that song "King Creole," you should listen to it. But it blew my mind. The bass line is amazing. Elvis sounds great, and that set me down a uh, uh, a long, passionate path of music and wanting to migrate to to America as a young man.
3: Wow, that's cool.
2: I have a blur of 45s in my memory, Sorry. and um, I'm not sure what order they happened in. And I'd have to, it'd be kind of funny to look them up on Google to see what dates they actually were. But the ones I remember, and they're all kind of in this blur moment, is um, Africa by Toto, mm. Don't Talk to Strangers by Rick Springfield, I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, and Rock the Casbah by The Clash. And I know they're all like in within this one like, period, but. Sure. They all they're you know at the time, like you heard you heard a song on the radio and you went to the store to find it, right, and so there's something about each of those songs that really hit me in some way and you know made me beg my parents to take me to <laughs> I don't know where we went anymore <laughs> yeah <laughs> to buy them but uh, sure, I still still love some of those songs
3: no all all great records, you know it's funny thinking about those and and you know i i often think about how how trends emerge and uh you know they often seem uh offensive or challenging at first to you know certainly to kind of mainstream and music is a big uh vehicle for that right and and you know i didn't grow up an elvis fan i grew up a more of a clash fan um but uh you know i i I love to think, you know, it, it occurs to me sometimes that Elvis was like this dangerous act, right? That was upsetting parents. He was, you know, sexually progressive uh, in, in his time. And it was like, uh, it was counterculture. And
1: I mean, man, like, yeah, Elvis was Megan Thee Stallion, right? Elvis was Marilyn yeah. Manson. Yeah. Uh, Elvis was all these artists. Elvis was Madonna. He was the artist that created the blueprint for everybody that's followed. Um, And I think sometimes people in America don't appreciate him for the innovator that he truly was because he did change the course of music and the music industry, undoubtedly.
2: so funny you say that because when we were watching, my wife and I were watching the Grammys and there was Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion doing their WAP, choreography. And we were just joking. It was like, remember when people were upset about Elvis and they had to like keep the camera above his hips.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And, and that's the thing, right? Is that, you know, in, in our society, like it's, that's such a foreign idea that, you know, that Madonna was, was, uh, risque or, or, you know, challenging to like, from where we sit right now, that's crazy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, again, the the clash, you know, ushered in a new genre, right. That was, uh, you know, was, was about rebellion and, you know, and now they're like a very middle of the road act. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I find that interesting just how, how the standards are always shifting and how, like what it's sort of like an impossibility. Like we can talk about these things, you know, logically rationally but you know the emotion like it, it's an impossibility to sit where we are today and really understand how those things challenge convention back in the day or in their time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's um it's funny so you, you know
2: Madonna we we actually talk about it in her book because she 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 points to Bowie as her
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, architect of her own career and a provocateur of his own, of you know that set the stage for totally. for for madonna for lady gaga um both who have pointed back to him uh, but he was he was actually really good at uh identifying those flashpoints and taking advantage of them you know and i think a lot of artists are i mean certainly the artists we just mentioned um definitely t- have taken advantage of that in the last couple of years of just understanding where they can find the hot spot that's going to be just enough to upset the adults Mm -hmm. (laughs) And just enough to excite the kids, you know, and somehow stay in the mainstream space.
3: Yeah. Is that still the thing? I remember reading uh, Shep Gordon's book, Superman Trade, and he talked about his formula, right? Which was to get your client uh, famous for for upsetting parents, right? and Have them do something that's going to get them in the newspaper that parents are going to be pissed off about. You know, that was the 70s, 80s when, you know, I think counterculture was at its peak, Maybe, or or maybe not, or or, or a peak. Um, is that still where it's at? Because sometimes it feels like parents and children are a lot less uh, at odds, and maybe that's just where I am in life. But um, <laughs> how how important is that in 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 the research, and you know what what you guys have seen?
1: I, I think. To some degree, your statement does ring true. There is a bit of a flattening, and I feel that the internet is largely responsible for this, that in many ways, parents and children are not that far off of consuming the same stuff in the same way from the same media. Um, So what Michael was talking about earlier, going to a record shop, going through records, buying a record, it was a young person's game, right? Right. You you need time to do that. Uh, And desire and energy, which is all the stuff that's in short supply when you're sadly an adult. Um, But I feel that the internet, to some degree, is flattening that. On the other end, look, I feel that art and, and certainly pop stardom will always do what Elvis did. There will always be a provocateur that people of a different generation just don't get, or they say, back in the day, my music was so much better, or there's no good music anymore, Right? or they don't make them like they used to. And my view is that that is absolutely not true. They make them different, but they're just as good they appeal to a different generation and the truth is i did have a lot of discussions with a lot of people my age about cardi b and megan the stallion's performance at the Grammys, right mm-hmm. uh and some of them were outraged and shocked that their young kids got to see that right and i'm like uh what happened to you because i've known you since high school or since we were kids um, so yeah. my, my view is that it's it, the answer is, is a bit of both right it's th- that it, 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 these these things of, of pop culture coming and provoking are ageless and timeless, and it will always happen. But at the same time, maybe our the shock value is a bit less so, just because of the flattening of accents.
2: Yeah, and I would say the, I mean, shock is still one way to provoke. But I and mean, as we've seen, you mentioned the Clash, who brought politics into into music very uh, prominently, and. I, I think even more so today. That's still the case. I mean, you, you all artists are willing to go there and make provocative statements, um, not actually to shock, but to actually try to either draw some lines in the sand or try to get people behind a movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just another way it happens. So you have, I mean, look at Public Enemy. I mean, that that was the gig, right? right? Yeah. I um, mean, that was the gig. Um, Kieran Gandhi, Madam Gandhi, in our book, that is her gig. And this is just another way to be provocative, um, and I think in a genuine way for all of those artists we mentioned.
3: So, um, why seems like you guys have enough going on without taking on this book? Um, uh, why? What? What led you to to want to write this now and uh, to collaborate with each other on it?
1: There's a saying about. Inventions or company or or, or songs that um, they're just there and they're they're just begging to come out. Mm. And um, for us, it felt that this is a story that needed to be told, and where is it rung true for people among the even the very artists that we interviewed we don't feel that the concept of uh, a a creative education the value of a creative education especially at this time uh, has gotten its share of awareness in the public discourse that there has been a lot of discussion and millions of editorials written about the urgent need to teach young people science and technology and engineering um and and mathematics but the discussion about the way that these are woven together to create outcomes is done through creativity Mm -hmm. we just don't feel that it got enough attention so for us both through our work at Berkeley as well as individually uh, we felt very powerful we felt very strongly uh, and, and very powerfully that this uh, uh, story had to be told about the, the, the critical need that we have as a society to reinsert creativity uh, as as part of the uh, the 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 discussion uh, around uh, the way that we think, the way that we educate, the way that we approach uh, problem solving, um, and for us, at its core, creativity is a fundamentally human um, mm-hmm. uh, human endeavor. It's what distinguishes us from everybody else. And everything that I just discussed about math, science, technology, art really testaments to human creativity and ingenuity. We invented those uh, disciplines to explain our world. Mm -hmm. But if we weren't creative, we would not have mathematics. We would not have science. Uh, And since I'm Greek and we started the podcast by talking about where I am, the very etymology of the word technology literally means the deep study of art, Mm. because technology is fundamentally art expressed in a different way, as is mathematics. I mean, we tend to think of numbers as purely objective. No. I mean, all this stuff, again, is a testament to individual expression and how we chose to interpret the world around us, whether it's through a song or through an algorithm or through, um, you know, a scientific equation.
3: Hey, let's talk about distracted driving. Man, it's a serious problem on our roads leading to the deaths of thousands of people, and injuries in the hundreds of thousands every year. I tell you what man, I love my phone as much as anybody, I'm on it all day long, it's my, it's my lifeline to the outside world, I couldn't do my business without it, but I've had to learn when I'm driving, put the phone down, keep my eyes on the road, you know it's just too dangerous out there, not just for you, but for other drivers, pedestrians, bicyclists, Too many people are still on their phones while driving, whether they're texting, checking emails, scrolling social media feeds, y'all probably watching videos. Uh, You're putting yourself and other people at great risk. It's dangerous to use your phone behind the wheel and the police is writing tickets to enforce hand-free and anti-texting driving laws. When you're driving, put down your phone, keep your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. Remember, you drive, you text, you pay. Brought to you by NHTSA. So in in your research for the book, what did you learn about creativity that you didn't already know?
2: (laughs) I don't know if there's anything I actually learned that I didn't know. I mean, it's kind of like the purpose of writing the book. Um, The the things that I felt writing the book, though, you know, um, and, you know, the book comes out of our work together at Berkeley and IDEO. Our um, course that we taught at Berkeley... Um, I, I think what I, you know, when we started this journey together, we just had a intuition. There was something interesting to do together. There were some interesting topics to cover. Um, we knew there was something interesting about the way musicians, designers, entrepreneurs all approach the world. And it it was intuitive for Panos and I, because we just did it, (laughs) but you know, but no one had ever written about it. And we didn't have, we didn't have like a shared vocabulary for it, you know? And so um, the journey of going through the courses, developing those courses, teaching them and writing the book was, was us kind of starting to develop that vocabulary, you know, lexicon. So when it came to interviewing the artists, for me, it, it became a very affirming process, you know, yeah. like, I mean, how cool is it to be able to like, listen to, to Hank Shockley or to T-Bone Burnett or um, Pharrell and go, oh, I'm not crazy. I think the same way they think, you know, and you start to realize, you know, it, that there truly is a different perspective, a different way to see the world, a different way to work. And that anytime that, you know, you can think about in your life when you felt like the lone person in the room, like, going, am I crazy? Am I, you know, why wouldn't we do it this way? Um, You know, if you, if you've ever been that person, I think when you read this book, you'll feel the same way we did when we were writing it. It's like, oh, this is us. We are all of the same mind, and it, and it leads in completely different places on life, and that's exciting.
3: Mm-hmm. So your day job is a is a designer. Um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so and and if I understand, you're also a musician. Um, so how does how does that how do those fit together? How does being a musician Impact your approach to design, and and vice versa.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> this is this is what Two Beats is all about, really. And um, I'll I'll uh, quote somebody else to, to answer that. Who's who's Pharrell? Pharrell, um, who features prominently in the book. He um, he said, you know, his 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 collaborations are pretty wild. He's gone from like working with Jay Z and T- Justin Timberlake to Adidas, among, Adidas among and Mont, and Montclair, and for him, he said, you know, whether I'm writing a song or designing a chair, for me, it's the same thing. You know, the 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 hook, the lyrical hook is are the legs. the 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 body of the chair is the chords. So it's it's a mental model of thinking about how people experience something. I, I think it's where you start. Mm. And then the way you get inspired is is the same, whether you're designing or you're writing songs, you're you are opening yourself up to the opportunity around you and listening to what's there. So, you know, we we um, feature Bjork in the book and she there's a story about her uh, being in a harbor in Reykjavik and hearing, you know, all the shipping freighters and the birds. And, you know, for her, that's not noise pollution and it's not noise. It's actually music. Right. And and if you listen to one of her songs, Wanderlust, she actually takes those sounds literally from from the harbor and starts to harmonize them into an arrangement that introduces the song. And I, I think it's a really clear illustration of how inspiration comes from even the most mundane things around us because we're we're open to that. And design works that way, music works that way. I think most art works that way.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you know, I was thinking about, <clears throat> you know, you have someone like Bjork who um, I think we would assume is very uh, free form in her creation, kind of how she's inspired by, you know, the world around her and, and just, you know, and then you have uh, maybe on the other end, you have like the Max Martin, Dr. Luke school of creating pop hits where they follow a very specific formula and there's a lot that's been written about that. Um, it, you know, is there, is it, is it, is there a right and wrong in that? Is there, does it, it, does it take all kinds? Um, is there, have you, did you guys find a, a unifying theory at all to, to what works because it seems like as many as, as rules as there are, uh, there's, you know, that many exceptions.
1: There is one common thread, and that is just to keep trying, keep doing. And um, in the book, we have a quote from Justin Timberlake, who uh, I had talked to when he came to Berkeley. And he just said something that really, really uh, uh, stuck with me. And, And that is that when he was... Uh, a, a young, uh, a, a up-and-coming uh, pop star, and started working with uh, Max Martin. He, he asked him, hey, man, like what, what's the key to writing a hit song? And he says, just keep on writing. Mm. Um, and I think the idea of experimentation, which features prominently in the book, or the idea of just uh, keep trying and not look at your mistakes as mistakes, but that as part of the process, I think whether you're Bjork and you're inspired by The Sounds of the Harbor or whether you're Max Martin and you have a particular formula that's in your head and you're chasing and you want to just get out the perfect pop hit, um, it's pretty much the same. The the uh, almost flipping the script and not looking at errors as ends or dead ends, but looking at them as... Uh, yet another door that opens to reveal something else and then another door that opens and reveals yet another thing and another thing until you arrive at a place where you feel comfortable with, with, with whatever you're creating. And if nothing else, we're also finding that even when they capture that artistic expression in a medium that they feel comfortable, they will always keep working at it even after the fact. How many songs do you know that the artist captured in a particular way on uh on a record and then they've subsequently gone through all kinds of of changes and in the book we have a reference to bruce springsteen and "Born in the usa and if you follow the trajectory of that song it's changed so many times over the years often based on um even the 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 politics of the day or the sentiment Mm -hmm. of the day um so that is what struck me that all these uh, uh, musicians that we profile in the book are just not afraid to try and to fail, but look, but look at that failure, again, not as an end in itself, and therefore something to be avoided, something terminal, but something that simply gives life to yet another thing or a step that is taken to give you momentum to take the next, the next step
3: yeah yeah no that's great i i I just finished uh matthew syed's book uh black box thinking where he he kind of goes further right and and talks about failure as a necessary component that to, to learning right and he talks a lot about how that works in the scientific method um and uh and i think you know it's you know we have such a deeply ingrained aversion to the idea of failure that that's uh that's probably a lifetime's work to overcome for, for a lot of people. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, what are the, you guys work in innovation? Um, you know, in a lot of different areas, um, what are the things that musicians or the music industry or the world of music should be learning maybe from the outside? Or are there?
2: Yeah, totally. Um, Panis and I have been involved for a number of years in uh, something called the Open Music Initiative, which is really inspired by the open software movement. Mm. And the impetus was to take, you know, to your point, like, what can you take from another industry, industry and bring into this industry? I mean, most innovation happens that way. It's not like inventing the light bulb <laughs> like <Right>. Edison. <laughs> it's sure. like, hey, that worked here. Can it work over here? So for us, we were looking at open source software, looking at how people were using rights attribution, data sharing, and then looking at the tangled mess of the music industry. Asking, how can you bring those ideas and port them over into this industry to free it up? Because, mm-hmm. you know, for for whatever merits any of those systems had at one point in the digital era, they're completely broken. They just don't make any sense, um, and they actually restrict creativity and they restrict. They restrict generosity. They restrict collaboration. And so uh, with Open Music Initiative, the the goal is to say, hey, can we create some APIs for the music industry that allow you to start sharing information with one another to, at at its most fundamental, just have correct attribution of uh, contribution to songs, you know, whoever you were in the room, whether Mm -hmm. you're a musician, artist, songwriter, et cetera um because that's not the case currently um and if you've read anything about the the outcry against streaming services or the way record deals are made or whatever complaint you find coming from the music industry else starts to come down to this problem so um but we believe if you can unlock it you can start to unlock new kinds of experiences new kinds of artist experiences or consumer experiences you know like um and technology can be one way you know um before there was a com- there's a company called Dubset that came along mm-hmm. that because they were able to uh, scan the back catalogs of the major record labels, it allowed them to identify um, uh, small moments and songs and attribute to whichever song that came from. And what that allowed is that allowed DJ mixes to be played on streaming services because up to that point when people were remixing The old systems didn't allow for any way for music to be um attributed so therefore the royalties didn't get distributed correctly but then um when that when that service came along it it opened that up and then you know not just people in the club could hear those mixes the whole world can hear those mixes and it to me it's a, a really nice simple illustration of like why these things are important because i mean think of it you know club culture remix culture is massive Um, it's just not, it wasn't massive in the streaming world because it couldn't be.
1: Yeah. I know you have a lot to say about this too. Yeah. Um, I, I always look at these things as a circular. So the, the, the music industry can teach something to other industries and other industries can teach something to the music industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's impossible to separate what came first, the chicken and egg, if you will. Uh, because the, the music industry in itself has been a pioneer in embracing technologies or or first being disrupted, then embracing, and then capitalizing on new technologies in a way that other industries have never done as successfully. Um, and starting with, with radio, then television, uh, then of course social media, Uh, And now you're seeing all the attention that non-fungible tokens are getting. So blockchain, Um, but I I would point to a couple of things. Um, It's interesting to see the way that um, uh, visual content, uh, how the consumption of that is changing. Uh, and how companies like Netflix are changing the way that we watch uh, uh, TV and our, and our habits around that. The fact that we're moving away from ownership to access, clearly that's been happening in the industry, but uh, what's the future of, let's say, engaging in live music? You know, what's the future uh, of having, uh, being a stakeholder uh, in your in in an artist's career, um, how do we consume even things like award shows? Could we learn something from the sports world about how they're packaging experiences um, uh, in, in 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 different ways, and they're able to generate a lot of revenue that is passive? Right, you don't have to go out there every single night. I mean, most of the revenue that's generated in sports no longer comes from the live event, it Mm -hmm. comes from selling the live event. Um, I think we can learn a lot from gaming Uh, and the way that gaming has withstood so many changes over the years and it's only continued to grow Uh, and the way that it engages their customers and their audience in a way that uh, becomes addictive on one end, but there is such a thing as good engagement and and deep engagement and the engagement that wants you to go deeper and deeper into discovering a game can we approach the discovery of an artist's catalog, for example, in the same way, which is something that seems to have gone away right now. Mm -hmm. Most of us consume music in playlists uh, very superficially, um, but we don't go deep. And I feel there's something valuable there about engaging with an artist's body of work in a deeper way than just the one single that happens to be on your Spotify playlist that somebody else curated or your friend put out there. Um, And I don't like the fact that we're losing the beautiful artistic expression of an album that is meant to be consumed from beginning to end so just like netflix puts out the series like queen's gambit people binge watch endless amounts of hours from the beginning to end how can we recapture that so that you do have the attention span to binge listen or dare i say binge watch an album mm-hmm. for one hour that's one episode yet people sit for 12 hours on a tv so right. why can't us, as a music industry, do the exact same thing?
3: What? Why
1: can't we? Go figure. Maybe that's, <laughs> that, I'm, I'm hoping that some innovator listening to this podcast somewhere and reads two beats ahead gets inspired and goes ahead and starts a company that does exactly that, that gets artists' creativity packaged up in such a way and again, I use the word audiovisual way because I think that we can leverage the visual expression of music in a way that we haven't seen since MTV did it. Mm-hmm. So can we create these approaches to musical content so that they ask us to binge listen, binge watch a musical expression? Um, I remember when Pink Floyd's The, watch, the Wall came out um, or 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 um, uh, uh, the last waltz or other, uh, movies that somehow captured the essence of an artist at that particular moment in time. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. we do it with an album? I mean, Beyonce did it, you know, she's, she did it with lemonade. She's
2: done it with, uh, the, um, her Lion King album, but it's like the cost of doing that right now is extreme. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be a Beyonce to be able to pull it off, or a Pink Floyd or whatever. So I, 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 it is interesting to think about like how how can the democratization of technologies make it easier for more artists to do things like that. You know, and I and I think it has come. I mean, so many band, so many hit indie albums were recorded on GarageBand, free software. You know, and um, that that's a that's a turning point. You know, same thing for I mean the iPhone you can make whole uh videos and songs with your all the software on your on your iPhone. So I think we'll get there. You know, we're only limited by the time we have really because the the cost of making that stuff at least um for, you know, an amateur artist is dropping. Um, yeah. Yeah, how long will it be before we get to Beyoncé level? I think a long time, but
3: <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe look, small I mean level. It's a really interesting dichotomy you're talking about, right? Because as you're saying, technology makes it easier and easier for anyone to make music. Um, which uh has interesting repercussions, right? We're getting more music than ever than has ever been made. Um we are, you know, my my friends who are producers are concerned about their future because now you can go to BeatStars and a bunch of other marketplaces and buy beats for $50 and Um, so there are those who are worried about, you know, devaluing that part of the equation. I think on, you know, the flip side, um, uh, kind of, you know, what you were saying is really interesting. I've, I've had this old man theory, right. That, um, that, you know, having this instant, easy, convenient access to, you know, millions of songs in your pocket, um certainly has its benefits but it also has a cost right and i think part of the cost has been that you know we don't have the same kind of relationship that we used to have when you had to wait for tuesday save up your money hope this hope the record was in stock when you got there and you'd take it home and you'd spend the afternoon or the week with the liner notes and the you know really the the deep dive into those records that we might have had in our childhood right and kids today are just not having that kind of experience. And um, maybe that's okay because they're having new types of experiences that we didn't, but also, you know, to your point, some, some things get lost in the process and there may be some things that we want to try to kind of re-engineer back into those experiences. Um, and, and I, you know, I think that's an interesting uh, cycle of just how, how things happen.
1: Yeah, the 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 way that I see it Josh is that these cycles, let's call them creative destruction cycles, right? Mm. They 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 will continue to happen. Um so sure, something that was valued at $100 is valued at $50 today and maybe valued at $5 tomorrow. But for me what I've seen in the industry done over and over and over again is from these pieces, if you will, or these ashes, uh, there's always a Phoenix, right? And, and uh, the musical innovators out there are busy taking all this stuff that uh, was once very expensive. And yes, a lot of people made a living out of that very expensive asset. Mm -hmm. but they're now they're taking these things that become very cheap and they're able to create something that has value in a different way and we've seen this in the industry over and over again so um uh this ability to remix which is one of the themes that we covering that we, we cover in the book is what i would challenge anybody including people in the music industry how can you remix something that's already there In a way that you create value out of something old and create something new hip-hop's done it right um so yes once the the art and act of laying down a beat was maybe very expensive or difficult um now as you're saying you can go and buy for 50 bucks you can buy it for 10 bucks Mm -hmm. uh you can get a garage band app for free on your phone and a a, a seven-year-old could make something cool i don't see that as necessarily a threat to the future of the 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 music industry as i see it as a challenge to find ways to create value Um, out of that and i'm not saying it's easy and i'm not downplaying the challenge or the fact that people have lost their livelihoods but i'm just an optimist by Mm -hmm. by nature so
2: i mean it's it's the is the crux of the shift from an industrial era to a digital era? I mean, I coming out of graphic design. I mean, l- imagine that you're a photographer in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you see all this stuff coming down, you know. And at first, you're like, "Oh yeah, digital photographs suck. They'll never replace." You know. And and next thing you know, like in, within 20 years, the whole industry slips up, upside down. And um, you know, but it didn't kill photography as an art form. It didn't. Right. It didn't kill photography um as um as a occupation mm-hmm. and uh, i think the same same is true for any of these things that are being disrupted in the music industry it just it shifts the value it's just as honest is saying it shifts our perceptions what's valuable about those things and i think what what that is is either you know the personal connections we make with it because it hits some kind of niche thing we're interested in or uh, obviously some artistry that surprises us but mm-hmm a lot of the scaffolding that held it up, that is absolutely shifting and going away and being replaced by other things.
3: So one of the shifts I think we've seen is that, um, some of the best brands in the world are now people. Um, and uh, maybe to some extent that's always been true, but you know, we think about Beyonce, as you mentioned, you know, Rihanna, Travis Scott, um, you know i think until recently that's been a a sort of a a uh, what's that called a backhanded compliment it's been a little bit of an insult if you would call a musician a great business person or a great marketer right and i remember you know when i was coming up people would say that about puffy they're like well he's a he's a great businessman as if to say he's not a great musician um and that the implication being that you you kind of can't be both um yeah and I think we seem to have cleared that hurdle. Uh, you know, I think, you know, now Travis Scott is respected in a lot of circles for what he does commercially and Beyonce the same thing, right? Um, what's What's the next hurdle you see for, for music?
1: Well, <laughs> clearly the devastation that COVID has wrought is can't be downplayed. Uh, But I do believe, so that's hurdle number one. We got to get over this. Mm -hmm. Um, Millions of people's incomes have been decimated, not just artists, but all the stagehands at a show and all the technicians and the engineers and the producers. We tend to think of the music industry as just that tip of that iceberg, but there's a lot of people who make a living out of the stuff we enjoy. So for me, that is the first thing: getting the industry back uh, on on its feet when it comes to things other than streaming. Um, which, let's face it, still has. It's if you're Taylor Swift, you're generating a lot of money, but if you're the average artist, you're yeah. you're you're not going to make a living out of your streams. Yeah. Uh, only. And um, I I, I see a few things. First, I'd like to see a more equitable sharing of the enormous wealth that's being created in streaming because it is not just the future. The future has already happened, if you will, there. But there is no reason that, that $10 of my subscription is not distributed according to my listening preferences. Right. Um, But it's based on some opaque formula that nobody truly knows. And paradoxically, the more listeners, the less I get paid because of the way that ultimately that money is is, is cut up, if you will, and distributed. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see us come up with not just a more equitable way of distributing the streaming money but um, flex plans on on streaming that change based on uh, my listening habits so if I'm binge listening to Josh I'd like my money to go to Josh I don't want my money to go to Michael you know Uh, hey hey, (laughs) uh, or or if I'm if if i am if i'm hoarding the service and i'm listening to it 10 hours a day because i'm a 14 year old kid obsessed with music well why should we all stick to the one price equals fits everything right, right. so i'm not the first person to bring these ideas up but i would i do believe that we're seeing the industry now getting back to health, growing five years now in a row, nobody would have said that to you six, seven, eight years ago. Definitely right? not. And I see that as a good thing. I see the streaming services as a good thing. But let's get busy to read, to to invent the next phase of streaming, um, which I'm sure is going to look different than this. So I'm waiting for that innovator again to... Uh, to get inspired mm-hmm. hopefully by reading two beats ahead and going out there and inventing that next uh, that next model of what streaming is and again how do you capture that enthusiasm of discovery that michael talked about when he was 13 14 or younger going to the record shop flipping through artwork and picking up a record not just because it sounded good, but also because it looked good. Or actually, often it was because it looked good first, and sure. then it just happened to sound good. Uh, let let's let's face it. Um, I as a kid, I chose many records uh, because they had a cool a cool image, a cool a cool cover. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I, I, I think we have some ways to go, but that's a cause from optimism. That that this means to me that the the full value of what the music industry is has not been unlocked. I like think there's also I have this dream and I, I,
2: I think we're I don't know if the NFT thing is gonna make any difference to it at all, but right now the the equation for success in in anything online, whether you're a personality or a musician or whatever, is all about views. It's right. it's like the old as the old advertising model. Yep. Uh, you know, it's the way we justify buying ads in a newspaper or a billboard or whatever. And I, I think it's just a broken model. It doesn't tell you anything about, I, I think for artists, it's sure it certainly isn't satisfying. i they're getting a big paycheck from it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm really curious how we can bring engagement back into this, the factor of success. You know, like I, I think most artists would rather know that someone actually listened to their art, their song, watch their movie, read their book and has some opinions about it versus looking at some number that says X many of people, you know, scrolled by in 0.3 seconds and tapped your, your photo and said it was good. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, it's just not a satisfying way to connect. And I think all of us as artists are trying to connect with people. We're trying to share our humanity with, with others in a universal way. And we're, and that's part of the joy of making art and sharing art. So, I think if that can be cracked and I, and I think the reason I bring up NFTs because a lot, a lot of, a lot of that world is coming up in communities where where communities are deciding how to reward success. Right. You know? Um, and I like that idea, um, because generally when a community is coming together, it's coming together because it truly is engaged with a shared interest or shared purpose and therefore is, um, more aligned to what I'm saying, but even though I'm even that I'm still not sure is going to do what I'm saying. So I, I'll just I'll give you one I'll give you one quick example from the '90s. Mm. There was a website called GarageBand. <laughs> right. In the '90s, and the way it worked is you you basically could upload any song you wanted for for a review. You know, it was the idea. It's like you know, demos going up, getting comments. But to get a review, you had to give five reviews mm. you know, and the beauty of that is you always had an ecosystem of people commenting on each other's music and and the rules were pretty good, so you couldn't just you know write "This sucks, and then that counts That wouldn't count right. um like you had to go through and say, "All right, you know at one forty five when the drums come in, you know that sounded a little uh lazy, I you know you know so that kind of feedback you could get was really meaningful and the exchange there was engagement. Mm -hmm. And I I believe that's really missing in in the social media world. I definitely don't think that's really happening. It's all a performance at this point. And I would love to see us get back to that.
3: Yeah. I mean, you guys are talking about really interesting forces, right? And I think they're, they're, you know, certainly musicians for the most part make music because they want people to hear it. They want it. To, to impact people, right? They want to share whatever's inside of them with the world. And I've had friends who run record labels who say, you know, whenever we present an artist with an opportunity that uh, might make them more money, but cause, but have fewer people experience their music, they always want more people. They always want the, you know, broader reach. Um, and and yet you know the the flip side of that is we have these ongoing debates about how the profits are shared and and you know we want we you know they challenge our notions of fairness and and equity um and I think you know those they're just interesting there's an interesting interplay that that you know there's no i don't think there's a right answer um but it's a constantly shifting tide right and i think the n f t space you know is fascinating in part for, I think, how quickly it's moving. And, you know, I fully expect that the, the, the kind of growth curve we saw in streaming is going to happen in, in three to six months in the NFT space, in terms of just how many pieces of content are being dumped into the market. Um, obviously with, with a bunch of people whose incomes have been curtailed or sitting at home with nothing to do. Right. Um, yeah.
2: With play money. You're right. Absolutely. Uh,
3: and so it's probably a good time to be a music attorney um, or, a, or a tech attorney who understands that space because there's a lot of details that are going to have to get worked out along the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think those are, you know, the, those are factors that are, are constantly shifting and, and testing our, our value systems. Right. And, and, you know, again, about, about how much someone should make or how, you know, how the money should get divided is always, um, you know, it's, it's just always shifting. Um, let's, let's go back to the book. How are, how did you guys, uh, cause you know, this was a collaboration on a creative work, much like the stuff that you write about, um, how or did you apply any of the lessons to the actual creation of this product or the marketing of it?
1: Oh, man. We had a whole meta journey is that writing right? the book. Because, Tell me about that. Well, anybody who tells you that a book just writes itself is uh, not telling you the truth. And maybe I started the podcast by sort of implying that was the case, but it was not. It was... It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's a very difficult journey. Maybe this was like the equivalent of like Springsteen recording Born to Run or something like that. Uh, it, it it took a lot of twists and turns. And part of it I feel is because we started violating some of our very principles. Mm. Uh, the way that we went about um, uh, getting some some help in organizing our ideas around the book and the collaboration we had there. Um, the way that we probably um, almost violated our own uh, intuitive uh, approach to writing the book and um, almost iterating it our, our, our way through it, which is part of what we're talking about in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we found ourselves at a crossroads at, at some point. Uh, where we thought, God, can we actually do this? Um, and we we had a, one of those conversations where we th- thought maybe we just give back the advance and just call it a day. This is just crazy. <laughs> really? Um, and, and I think then it's almost like, I, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of both of us, but I think we had a bit of an epiphany. And we said, you know, we, we've been doing this all wrong. Let's just go back to actually the stuff we are talking about in the book. Let's find the right formula for how we get these ideas and sin- synthesize them. Uh, let's find the right uh, person to collaborate on that front, which is a critical—it's a, it's a, it's a critical component of the process because you know writing a book is often like the equivalent of walking into a room and there's all kinds of stuff strewn all over the floor and then you have to somehow piece them together to make a whole or maybe right. it's the equivalent of walking into a kitchen with a bunch of ingredients and you're like i have no idea how this stuff fits together i intuitively feel there's a great meal in there i just mm-hmm. need to kind of figure it out and sometimes you need an outsider to be like well this and this Why don't to try it out um so I, I feel that the whole book, in many ways, is our application of our own meta ideas, and and and, and the journey of writing the book could make a book in itself because it was both the simultaneous uh, uh, ig- ig- ignoring these principles or or mindsets, better better word, uh, and then reembracing them in order to come up with what we both feel very very proud of as mm-hmm. as an end uh, as an end product or. It just says a beginning product because we don't want this conversation to end with a hard copy of the book. We want to continue the conversation through mediums such as yours, Josh, uh, Mm -hmm. or or otherwise.
3: Interesting. Well, if uh, if history is any guide, there's 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 always interest in in that journey behind the scenes, right? And that's what we learn from, you know, behind the music or or every uh every music documentary that's coming out, you know, this year on the streaming services or um or what people are sharing on social media, right? That we are we're fascinated with the creative process. Um Yeah, and- we have
2: Harishikesh Karaway is in the book is um mentioned in the book and his mm-hmm. his his uh what's well, on Netflix now Song Explorer, Explorer which started as a blog. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's a great example of that. I, it's hard to imagine a book exploder, but maybe it, maybe it could happen, you know.
3: <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? And I, you know, I, um, I, I, you know, I've created a little device in my own work where I, I tell myself and and the people I'm working with that my first draft is never very good. Um. Right. And and so that gives me the freedom to to create and to share stuff that you know, is, is maybe a a vulnerable moment and, and also, you know, kind of forces me into this process of, of improvement and refinement. Right. Um, but, uh, but then there's always the issue of, well, when, when is it done? Right. And when, when is it good enough? And I think, you know, sometimes we're fortunate to have deadlines forced upon us. Um, that uh, yeah, f- that caused the end of a project uh, that might otherwise go on forever.
2: An editor helps. Yeah, a <laughs> deadline helps. An editor helps. We we missed our first deadline. We missed it by, I think, three months, didn't we, Pona? So I think it was three months. We we had to an extension, <laughs> and we uh we we turned it in, and it was um. Not only was she kind of ho honorable but she's like, also, you have another twenty thousand words <laughs> you need to add to this book. Wow. <laughs> They're like, uh, okay
3: yeah
1: <laughs> turned out great though nice we we we, we were like the departmental artist the recording studio that the record label told you you got to go there and write or uh, put out an album and we're like yeah we're just waiting for inspiration to 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 strike <laughs> uh so it was a bit of a throwback to uh you know all the stories you hear about people in the 70s and, and recording studios
3: sure nice well that's great i appreciate. Um, you're sharing this journey and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens uh, once the book's out and, and people start interacting with it. Um, uh, I, gotta, I know you guys have uh, lives to get to, so, uh, but I, I got to do a quick lightning round with you before I let you go. Um, so you can j- jump in uh, whatever order you want, uh, but I'll put this out to both of you. What's your favorite city to travel to? Oh,
1: there's so many well- good cities. Go ahead, Pontus. Well, I actually love where I'm at right now in Nicosia, Cyprus. Mm. Uh, because I normally I live in Boston, and I absolutely love Abu Dhabi and London. Nice. Uh, I'm going to say Reykjavik, which is um,
3: cool.
2: I just I love Iceland, and you know, shout out to the tourist volcano
1: going on there right now. Mm. <laughs> See, that's when you know that Michael and I are different, right? So he he loves cold (laughs) and places that are dark for half the year. And I just love (laughs) sunny places, man.
3: Yeah, me too. Me too. It's funny. Like, you know, I love, I've traveled a little bit in Scandinavia and I love it there. But whenever I think about, uh, you know, being there when it's not summertime, I can't even imagine it. Um, (laughs) Who's your favorite DJ. Or if you're not into DJs, uh, the best live show you've ever seen? Hmm.
1: That's a great question. Uh, The best live show I've seen really has to be U2's Innocence and Experience Tour. The way that they used projection and led uh and the whole way that the uh the uh, the narrative the uh, the the visual narrative blended in with the 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 output of those four guys was Mm. just amazing amazing and i would say second to that was News show from uh, maybe 10 years ago
3: Cool. Nice.
2: I'm going to go with Flying Lotus on this one. He's got oh. a, kind of a weird, like crazy stage thing going on. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but he's made it. His DJ Jess is actually some kind of, you know, um, kitted out light show slash hologram creator.
3: Oh, cool. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. He's, he's super creative. Um, so other than your own, what's the last great book you read or listened to?
1: Man, the, I read, uh, the latest Muhammad Ali biography that just completely blew me, uh, away. And I regret that I'm forgetting the writer right now.
3: Well, we'll Uh, we'll look it up. We'll put it in the show notes that's uh yeah that's cool
1: um but uh it it, i i read the book while i was on uh uh, frequently going to to um to abu dhabi in the middle east and um it really changed my life it changed the way that uh i've seen a lot of things certainly changed the way that i uh, I, i i understood the 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 journey of, of of a young black man in america growing mm-hmm. up at the time mm-hmm. uh and it made me see him as a human being uh more so than a god and i mean i've loved muhammad ali since i was a kid sure uh all the way to understanding uh, and seeing religion in a whole different light and absolutely i would say the uh the muslim or islamic uh, religion a different way um uh so it was a beautiful book beautifully written about a a, a, a beautiful soul um uh, in, in so many ways um, very cool
2: so yeah nice i love i love books about music <laughs> so I, I just read an older book it's uh, called a creation story by alan mcgee about okay. about creation records mm. and uh about his starting that label and um going through these you know great bands like you know primal scream was basically his high school buddies you know um discovering slow dive and my bloody valentine getting to oasis and having the whole label just um blow up and uh pretty fascinating it it just the testimony to if there's a will there's a way because there's so many failures in his story of Mm -hmm. just things collapsing at um, one time after the other. And, um, it was encouraging for me there just to see like, you know, pa- passion, usually passion when uh, committed to over time results in what you're dreaming of, but even so, you know, creation eventually folded. So sure. I enjoyed reading that.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'll share when I, I just uh, recently listened to Smokey Robinson's memoir. Um, and you know, he tells so many great stories about you know, growing up in Detroit and and all the hits and you know go through one by one kind of how how those records came together. Um, but he says something at the end that has really stuck with me, which is you know he grew up in Aretha Franklin's father's church, which was the big black church in Detroit, um, and he said you know on on any given Sunday there were singers in there that were more talented than him and Aretha, and uh, and that the you know that it was it was luck and a bunch of other factors that caused them to be you know famous and legends and someone else not that, that you know which for me you know i think we always have this romantic idea of talent that some people are blessed with and others aren't and and so that was an interesting reminder
2: yeah i think that's so true i mean and, and you know that like I mentioned earlier, talking to all these artists, you just, you realize, I think mean, Jimmy Iovine was another one who just, you know, he talked about when he wasn't lucky and when he was, and he and he said, he was basically lucky that his career got started. It was all luck, yeah. you know? And then he had things that completely fail, mm-hmm. um, but he never considered himself a genius. He just considered himself in the right place at the right time. And I, I think that's true for so many successful people. Yeah. It's just about being present and being open.
1: And sometimes those stars cross.
3: That's right. Um, what movie have you seen the most in your life?
1: Back to the Future. Nice. Star Wars.
3: Okay. Great. <laughs> both, both good movies worth uh, spending time with. Um, Who is someone you haven't met that you've learned a lot from?
1: Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. Cool. I guess I'm going to, I'll shout out to Jeff
2: Tweedy on this one. I've never met him, but I've read his books and, um, again, he would be, he's a, he could be another chapter in our book. I just the way he approaches his songwriting. He talked about this idea of being committed to the process, not to the outcome. And, um, you know, Pan has talked about that earlier today mm-hmm. about staying committed to the work. Yeah. Um, but definitely books are great. Check them
3: out. Nice. And lastly, uh, if I worked, if we worked together, what's something I would hear you say over and over?
1: You have more time than you think. (laughs) That's good. Uh, It's valuable
2: something that was said to me that I've uh, often repeated to others is, uh, don't get defensive, get curious, Mm. especially when you come into new ideas that are unfamiliar to you.
3: Yeah. That's a good one. I, I think, you know, those, those instincts run strong and I think we have to always fight that. That's great. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. Um, I'm going to, I'll post a link to, uh, two beats ahead in the show notes. I hope everyone picks up a copy and checks it out and gets inspired. Uh, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Josh.
3: Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Yo, that was Panos Panay and Michael Hendricks, authors of two beats ahead. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Go get you a copy of Two Beats Ahead. Uh, it's on Amazon and everywhere else you get your books. Definitely worth a read. Um, and most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.
0: Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave, with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode, so search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice.